Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Coming up, cats versus dogs. Today's debate needs little explanation and everyone's got an opinion on it. Feline or canine? Which four-legged friend do we love the most? Well, back in 2020, we gathered two outspoken thinkers to settle it once and for all. John Gray is one of the UK's best known and most popular philosophers who wrote the book Feline Philosophy, Cats and the Meaning of Life. No prizes for guessing which side he was on and Will Self, the novelist, broadcaster and critic who went for Team Dogs. Hosting the debate was the writer, academic and broadcaster Shahid Abari. This is part one of the debate and if you'd like to hear part two immediately and listen ad-free, you can support Intelligence Squared's mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversations by heading over to intelligencesquared.com membership or by subscribing in your Apple Podcasts app. Now let's join Shahid Abari, John Gray and Will Self for Cats vs Dogs. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared online debate, cats versus dogs. Uh, In today's debate, we'll be fighting like, yes, cats and dogs in the battle of a household pet. Who will triumph, Fido or Felix? We'll find out over the course of the next hour. Now, uh, let me share the result of the vote from a moment ago. And I can reveal that the vote has come back as 34% for cats and 48% for dogs, with an undecided or for hamster vote, 17%. So that's a fairly decisive win for the dogs. But let's see if John can make a difference to the standings right now. So let me tell you about our speakers. Speaking up for dogs, we have the novelist, broadcaster and commentator Will Self. He's the writer of the recent trilogy Umbrella, Shark and Phone and a memoir titled Will in 2019. He's also the writer of an infamous LRB article where his dog discovered a lurid sex toy while being walked on Clapham Common, if I recall, Will. So I think he'll have lots to say. And then speaking up for cats, one of our most popular political philosophers, John Gray. John's books include Straw Dogs, uh, The Silence of Animals and Seven Types of Atheism. And his latest book, as Hannah described, Feline Philosophy, Cats and the Meaning of Life, has been called by the observer the intellectual cat's pyjamas. Now, Will and John will have 10 minutes. If either of you run over, you'll hear a a pertinent sound encouraging you to rapidly perorate. So let's start. Let's hand over, first of all, to Will on behalf of dogs. Thank you, Shahida. 17% is a lot to play for undecided. And and with 48%, you might think I'm well ahead of John here and that 
you know, it, it behooves me with my kind of doggish nature to give ground immediately. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm strongly invested in a fight-flight mechanism and I already feel myself retreating here. You know, and, and what I want to say at the outset is I bear no animosity towards the cat fraternity at all, to humans who 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 favour cats or to cats who favour humans or any of that. I don't really want this to be a kind of, uh, and I think the, 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 the idiom is appropriate, a pissing contest of any kind <laughs> at all. To be blunt, I, I, I consider John a, a dear and, and uh, old friend now. We've known each other for, we first met nearly 20 years ago, and I am a, a great admirer of his work, not least this book, which I, I think is utterly stimulating and a, and a delight to read. And Moreover, you know, I've had, I've, I've lived with cats myself, and 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 been very close to them. So I, I'm really just not interested in going in that direction. Nor may I say, am I interested in what we might call the anthropomorphic direction, which is to take the question from solely the point of view of the human being and talk within that experience of. You know, I think we need to talk in terms of a, a, a of what uh, Jacob von Wexkuhl, the great founder of animal ethology, called the life world, the Lebenswelt of the creature, and and not prejudice the view, for example, with our human capabilities of investing just about anything in our environment, with the possibility of being sentient the way we are. You know, I think of... of I'm waving a, an ancient hand axe in front of the camera because <laughs> I think if I wave... You know, if this hand axe sort of noses into the camera view and then noses out again and then comes back and perhaps it nuzzles against my <laughs> face, people out there are going to start thinking it's sentient, that it, that it has a form of, of consciousness and that they, they'll probably start trying to predict where it's coming from because that's what humans do. You don't need to be a disciple of Simon Baron Cohen and his views about theory of mind in autists not to understand that we, we will do this willy-nilly. We will anthropomorphise and we will project onto anything in our environment the possibility of sentience. So I don't really want to go down that route either. I don't want to kind of, as I say, indulge in a pissing contest, but if John is going to try any sort of speciesism of any kind at all, including any arguments that strongly favour cats over dogs, I, I, I would have to rub his nose in it like a naughty philosophic puppy, because the, the fact of the matter is he himself argues very strongly against even the concept of a species, certainly when it applies to humans, and I, I, I don't see why cats should be, or, or dogs should be exempt for this either. It's a very porous barrier, the species barrier. So, you know, we don't want to commit the, the sin, the, the, the dual sin of speciesism and anthropocentrism. So we're not, we're not going to go there, all right? I am not, strictly speaking, I have to say, a dog lover at all. Uh, lots of dogs I, I really don't like. Uh, I don't want to go anywhere. What I am is a my dog lover and he's actually curled up on the bed right behind me and it, it puts me in mind of a conversation I had quite recently with a man called Stephen Whittle who founded the the pressure group 
press for change that fought long and hard to get transgender people recognised in Britain legally as the the gender they wished to be. And I, I had dinner with Stephen. I did a book with him back in the 1990s when I was interested in transgender and I, and we talked a lot about those issues of, you know, what we think we are. And I had dinner with him two or three years ago, and he said, I, I no longer think in, in gender terms at all. I think of myself as a Stephen, primarily. That's who I am. Uh, and so I'm a McGlorian lover in the same tune. My, my dog is called McGlorian. He was named by my third son after McGorian a centaur in the in the magic forest next to Hogwarts. Yes, I have suffered for J- for J.K. Rowling's many millions. He thought that was too gory, so he called the dog McGlorian. And you know, I I had a bad relationship in a sense with dogs as a child. The the, the dog in our our family was the the unhappy centre of an unhappy family, and the woman I was sent to to who really brought me up because my parents you know, weren't up for the job a lot of the time, happened to be a dog obedience trainer. And I grew up, literally, with a dog that plays second at Crufts in the obedience class. So a dog of considerable intelligence in in human terms. Kate, this Alsatian dog, could perform, I kid you not, anything up to ten tasks in sequence that could be given to her verbally. Uh, and it was an extraordinary sight. But here's the key point about dogs. Dogs have an adaptive advantage if they get on with humans, and humans have an adaptive advantage if they get on with dogs. Basically, we are in true symbiosis as species. We have genetically altered in order to be with each other. This is not true of humans and cats. And that's the most salient thing. If there's going to be any argument, win, lose, we have to address this fact. You know, my, my late wife put it quite well when she said, dogs love us more than they love each other. Uh, and we love dogs more than we love each other as well. And I'm not saying that's true. I don't think it is true. But the, the level and depth of affinity between humans and canines, what we loosely call humans and canines, cannot be gainsaid. Uh, ask yourselves, even you fanatical cat lovers out there, touching a dog's body feels completely natural. They do not feel odd to us dogs. They never have felt odd. In in many traditional societies uh, hold on to your hats everyone it is commonplace for young women to suckle puppies to breastfeed puppies this is not considered a weird or a strange thing at all this is because of the selection pressure that we both share so what are we to make of this in terms of humans and in terms of dogs and in terms of cats john's brilliant book makes it clear that cats were never domesticated. They, If they live with us at all, they do it by choice, we, what we imagine to be choice of some form. They seem to live alongside us. They are not engaged with us in that way. John uses the cat, and I think beautifully, as a symbol of a kind of non-human intelligence, a non-human life world that we do well to revere, in a sense, and to understand, in a way, as a 
portal to perhaps a biophilia, a love of the natural world, that our human society represses a lot of the time. And I think that is, you know, and I don't mean this in a cheesy way, I think that's a beautiful thought, John, and and I can go with you in that thought a long way. But dogs tell us who we really are. And the truth of the matter is we're bounded by this society. We're bounded by this culture. And if you'll forgive the doggish idiom, we're in deep shit. And and the symbiosis of human and dog, the useless symbiosis of human and dog, that, that has us going round the corner here in the Oval South London to the Hound Hut to buy special biltong for McGlorian, that has me buying him a little uh, Fairisle jumper from Diamond Dogs in Bermondsey for £55, that sees me lavish care and attention on him that, frankly, he probably neither wants nor cares about. That, too, is a symbol of the shit we're in. Yes, We dogs and humans are embracing each other as we rocket towards the inevitable catastrophe. And indeed, the fact that our only access to the natural world is through a creature who we've domesticated to the extent that we've bred it into being a ridiculous little pygmy wearing a fair isle sweater is just proof of that fact. So I ask you to support dogs because they're in it with us. You know, basically, if you keel over, your cat will eat your face immediately. But a dog will wait about half an hour <laughs> until it's absolutely sure that civilization's going too. And that's the basis on which I want you to vote emphatically for dogs. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too you've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place netsuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared. netsuite.com squared. 
Marvellous. Thank you so much, Will. You were so impudent that you were on time and I didn't get a chance to play uh, my... My cue to tell you to stop talking, but wonderful. And Simon in the chat has already cat whistled, I guess. Cat called you. Let's see this so-called dog then, Will. And if your dog really is chewing biltong and wearing a feral jumper, then I think Simon speaks for all of us. Um, <laughs> while Will uh, grabs his dog, uh, let me uh, hand over to John uh, and we'll find out whether Will is barking mad. There's Magalorian. Brilliant. <laughs> Jack Russell. Uh, the most aggressive dog breed there is, bar uh, none. Yeah. Um, a bracing account there from Will, but is he barking mad? Let's hear the counter case for cats from John Gray. Well, the counter case, thank you, Will, for all the nice things you said about my book and for your defence of dogs against cats. And it's the only possible defence, as well as the most compelling defence, to say dogs are better than cats because they're happy to be in the shit with us. Most of the time, I mean, until the point where we expire and it's clear that civilization is really gone, they'll, they'll wallow in the same shit with every delight of which they're, they're capable. Cats here are different. And this is perhaps one of the reasons why I think there have been far many cat haters in human history than there have been dog haters. There have been whole anti-feline cats, cat movements in Europe, particularly in the period of um, early modernity and late medievalism, right from the start of Christianity, cats were singled out as uh, untrustworthy, uh, somewhat evil creatures, whereas I don't think that's been the case for dogs. And the fundamental difference between cats and dogs in their relations with humans is the one you mentioned, Will, which is that dogs have been, so to speak, in the form in which, forms in which we live with them, created or invented or fashioned by humans as their companions. We share so much of them. Whereas cats, first of all, elected to live with humans, I think, for what might be described as their own uh, reasons. And their DNA, though it's changed, though there are many breeds that have been even overbred, hasn't changed so much that their nature has assimilated to what might be called human nature or the human mind. They remain very, very different from us. Now, one other uh, point that I fully share with you, Will, is that we shouldn't rank animals, including the human animal, in any cosmic hierarchy. That's partly a moral thing. I think it's rather solipsistic and narcissistic and slightly shitty, if you, if, if you like. Mm -hmm. But it's also true, unless you're some kind of disciple of Plato or some kind of monotheist, that there's no great chain of being. What the, what, the, what the medievals and early moderns thought of was a kind of cosmic hierarchy in which we all fit. There isn't. There are just different uh, animals uh, with very porous boundaries, even between the different species of these animals, as you point out. In the end, I follow Spinoza in this, there are only actually individuals which happen to have some kinships with other animals that uh, are like them. And so that is true. So on what ground could I then argue for the superiority of cats over dogs? They're not, so to speak, metaphysically superior. They can't be. There's no great chain of being. But I think they give us something. My basic argument is that cats give us something because they're so different from us that other human beings or dogs 
which are part human in their very souls. I think other sentient species have souls. That's to say parts of themselves they don't understand, parts of themselves they'll never understand. And that the dog soul is closer to the human soul than the feline soul is, close, is, is closer to the human soul or the dog soul. So what is it that they can give us? Well, it's precisely this window into another world, a world larger than the human world. Now, it may be, Will, and I often think that this is the case, and I know you often think it's the case even more than I do, that we can't get out of this increasingly shitty human world. The only way of getting out of it is that the whole bloody thing perishes in some vast cosmic diarrhea or, uh, uh, of, of some kind. That may be the case. I'm not yet ready to make a judgment on it, whether I can't make a judgment on it. There's still too much uncertainty. But we can see out of it as individuals. We can look out of it and we can get strength and beauty and a certain kind of uh, life affirmation, if you like, affirmation of life itself by looking out of this shitty human world. And that's what cats give us. Cats are a kind of biophiliac icon. They're an icon through which we look out at the vast world, which still exists despite all the mass extinctions that are going on, human created, which is still there and will, in my view, survive us. Because one of the worst anthropocentrisms is the idea that humans are going to save the planet or that they can even destroy it. They can do enormous, colossal damage to other forms of life. But the Earth is vastly older, vastly stronger, vastly more resilient than we humans tend to think. And it will emerge in some other wholly different form when we are long gone, long vanished. And so it's, it's in a sense, the difference from cats, the remoteness of cats from us, that makes us, those who love cats, love them because they're so different from us. Love them, even though we know they don't love us back in the way that we love them or that we love other human beings. We know that. They may, have a kind, they may have a kind of love for us. I think their relation to us is not purely instrumental in the sense of being based on food. I mean, the common idea that they, cats love us because, or like to be with us, enter our households for cupboard love because we feed them. I think it's falsified by many instances because cats will eat what they're given if it's uh, pleasant to them. But if they really dislike the person who gives the human being that provides the food, they'll find another home pretty quickly. They'll move on and find, they'll hunt outside or they'll move to one or other homes. And this, by the way, is a, a fundamental difference between dogs. Hannah and I were talking about this the other day. I don't think there's any recorded case, I may be wrong about this, of dogs wandering off and adopting another household. Certainly not two or three, which cats quite regularly do. So the paradox of feline love, the love that cats have for us, I think, is that they may come to value us as companions, even though they don't need us. If they stop needing us, or if they stop liking us, they're off. And so every moment you spend with a cat is, in that sense, a gift of the cat from the cat to you and makes it kind of special. They're not loyal to us in the way that dogs are. They don't have the human virtue, quite rare, I think, of loyalty. They don't even pretend to have that. They are what they are, they assert their natures as the cats they are. They affirm their natures. They enjoy life. But part of that can be with, uh, be with, involve being with a, a human being. And one of the writers I love, I like the most, as well as 
uh, your books, Will, is a more uh, recent writer that I've only come across in the last um, uh, year, actually, or so, until, just before I wrote the book, actually, is Mary Gateskill, the American brilliant, original, highly original writer, who wrote a, a memoir, which has now appeared separately as a little book called Lost Cat, which is about her adopting a cat, a small, one-eyed, frail little cat, but an intrepid cat. And she felt she came to believe a loving cat, who she lost. And the experience lost irretrievably. Uh, and the experience, which sort of unraveled her mind in many ways, led, uh, uh, she thought, unlocked many of her relationships with other humans, with her father, who she'd had a very conflicted relationship. He died of cancer, partly because he wouldn't take treatment. She was unable to communicate him. She had difficult relations with the children she'd adopted, with her partner, and with humans in general. And she, in this book, attributes to this short relationship, less than a year, with a tiny little cat, a, a capacity to undo, uh, unknot, untie many of these knotted contradictions that she felt it attended her love for other humans and human love in generally. That's to say, loving someone when you don't want to love them might lead you to hate yourself for loving them. Someone loving you who you don't love might lead you to feel that their love is a burden uh, and an intrusion on you. All these uh, some human loves express a desire for power over the person who is loved or not loved. All of this, she thinks, is lacking in feline love. Not that it means we should therefore confine ourselves to feline love. What she f writes about in this wonderful little book is how this short, abrupt, and from her point of view, tragic relationship, nonetheless unlocked her capacity to feel love for other people in a, other human beings in a way she didn't feel before. So I think only a creature as different from us perhaps could give us that. Maybe there are some people who have had similar experience with dogs, but it's the very difference of cats from us, which makes them so beloved to those who, who love them. So what I'm arguing for is not the superiority of cats over dogs. Cats are cats, dogs are dogs, humans are humans. And each individual cat, dog, and human is what it is. And the most fundamental fact of all, as you say, is that, is, is that of this kind of individuality. But it's also true, and here I'll con happily concede something to you, that we differ from cats profoundly and that we, I mean, one of the reasons we're in this shit is that we need to be with humans in a certain kind of solidarity that cats don't need. I mean, male cats don't uh, uh, look after their kittens. Female cats will die for their kittens to protect them, but male cats do. And they're solitary hunters. They're solitary predators. So they're not like us. They're utterly different. Humans need to form packs congregations. They need to form communities in a way that cats don't. And that's essential to us. And that gives us many of the... Just a... <laughs> Just a gentle key. Uh, got it. And that's a valuable feature of humans. We don't want to become so feline that we lose the valuable attributes of being human. But we can do with an admixture of non-humanness if we are to be happier as human beings. And um, I think that's uh, something illustrated in Gateskill's great book. And that's why I urge you all to uh, vote for cats over dogs, because unlike dogs, they give us something that's not human and that enriches and even liberates our humanity. 
Thank you so much, John. Passionately advocating there for pussycats. Well, I've got a question for you. I wonder what you think of John's argument about what I take to be the volition of cats. Cats have elected to live with humans and that act of volition, their ability to act, uh, make a decision, um, that makes their company a greater gift to us. What do you think, Will? Well, I, I think it's pretty flimsy <laughs> as an argument is the problem. It's it's based on not a lot of empirical evidence and, su- and such empirical evidence that there is, is, I'm afraid, highly tendentious. Uh, at any rate, even if the argument does have some purchase, I, I think you could make the case, oddly enough, you can certainly make the case, you know, dogs may share... You know, so we may be in a symbiosis with them, but but particularly since we ceased working with them in a meaningful way, it's questionable how driven towards our practice and our being in the world that symbiosis is. It's much more likely, for most people, it's an emotional symbiosis, as I was saying. It's about a love object or a love person. I mean, we can get into that, but I definitely think of McLaurin as a person. And I, and McLaurin is is very other to me. I mean, he's he's close enough to me that I consider him as one of my fifth child in a sense. <laughs> he fits into that, and and I, I I think there's something very moving as well. And I've I've spoken with John about this before about you know, you know John has this marvelous thing in the book where he sort of reflects on this idea. That, you know, of course the Egyptians worshipped cats. That maybe, you know, there's something godlike in, a, in the way that we look towards cats but I also think for our domesticated animals they must particularly for dogs there must be something godlike about us uh, and I think that kind of hands the baton of responsibility back in an appropriate way you know because McLaurin you know McLaurin is looking around him now he's he's got very bad arthritis he needs a lot of medication he's not that old for Jack but he's not I think he's in his old age now, and he must be looking at me and thinking, hang on a minute, he was middle-aged when I arrived, and he's still <laughs> middle-aged now. What's going on? <laughs> so I think there's, there's something there, and I think that dogs offer us just the same portal to biophilia that John claims for cats. And I think that... that where I think John's argument falls down most clearly, and, and, I, and I'm touched that he, is, in a sense, came to join my argument, is on this business of our, our relationship overall with what we insist on calling the natural world, but which is really just the world. And it made me think of a great science fiction story. I can't remember the writer. I'm just going to match literary texts with him called, I think it's called um, A Dog and His Boy. Uh, and it's a post-apocalyptic story. And it's basically about a boy that hunts with a genetically enhanced superintelligent dog that he's telepathic with. Well, of course, it's not really science fiction. Dogs are telepathic with humans when it comes to hunting behaviour, when they, they work together. Anyway, the, the boy has a kind of affair with a young woman he finds in the wreckage of this post-apocalyptic wreckage. And, you know, plot spoiler, in the end, he feeds the girl to the dog. 
not the dog to the girl. And <laughs> that's why it's called a dog and his boy, I suppose. And and the point about this is to press forward with my argument. Yes, I don't know how severe the impact of this mass extinction event and the associated climate emergency is really going to be on human society in the future. But I know for one thing's for sure, if we do make it through what Stephen Hawking memorably described as this pinch point... I want to have a dog <laughs> to, to hunt in the post-apocalyptic ruins. Not a pussycat. <laughs> John, John, what do you what do you think? Will Will was a little bit catty there about your argument, but I wonder what you think of Will's argument that um, that dogs have an adaptive advantage if they get on with humans. Because we know that cats are not leading the blind; they're not sniffing out drugs; they're not detecting cancers. Does the usefulness, the inherent usefulness of dogs, even at the end of the world, as Will is imagining it? mean that your pay-end to pussycats will always come short? Well, it's, it's even more, uh, even, cats are even more useless in practical terms than you say, because they don't, they're not even terribly interested in pest control. There's quite a lot of uh, evidence that they just watch mice and see how they behave. But unless they have, unless there's some clear benefit to them in in hunting the mice, they're indifferent to it. And they don't do it when they're not watched uh, a lot of the time either. Uh, so that's perfectly true. But that increases, the, to my mind, the value of cats to humans. And it makes it clear that the value of humans to cats is not in their practical usefulness. So the fact whether or not they give us some kind of comparative survival advantage is neither here nor there. I mean, to me, in a way, I mean, I turn Will's question around the other way. Supposing we, I suppose by we, he means we humans, don't get through this huge combination of climate emergency and mass extinction. We're among the uh, uh, creatures that don't. To me, it's a source of um, life-affirming joy to think that the world will still contain cats, most likely because there'll be parts of the world, probably, that are inhospitable to humans, like the upper reaches of the Himalayas, but which do contain cats of a kind, which the upper reaches of the Himalayas also do. So to me, their very beauty, their very uselessness, if you like, or very limited uh, practical uses, adds to their value. And so that's why I kind of insist on this idea that their value to us doesn't depend upon anything practical. It doesn't. It isn't. It isn't that they give us any comparative advantage. They don't give us any comparative advantage at all in the struggles for survival. But they give us perhaps a degree of consolation if we're not going to survive. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy part two of the discussion right away, then head to intelligencesquared.com to sign up and become a member. And you can have access to a host of other member benefits, such as ad-free listening, extra bonus content, and more. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue, featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com.